I need a bench. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Morning, everyone. Let's hear some, let's hear, no, let's see some smiles. I went to Tim Hortons today with my grandson. The girl was serving us and had a mask on and everything. After I gave her the tip, then I said to her, hey, let me see some smiles in those eyes. And she actually did. Oops. So let me see some smiles in those eyes. Is that good? Excellent. Let's pray once more. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for Andrew and Rudy for leading us, Father, in, in, in praise. To adore you like we just sang. We just thank you, Father. And we know, Lord, that our hearts are not naturally inclined towards you, towards your words toward what you have done for us, toward what you are doing for us. And so, Lord, we just pray that you might open our hearts this morning, that we might understand what you would have to say to us in this passage. Open our minds, open our hearts, take our will, Father, and bend it to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Morning again. Good morning to everybody online. Uh, today we're starting our first study in a new series, and it's the series to uh, Philippians. Um, as I was studying uh, this passage this week, especially, uh, to tell you the truth, I was touched, and several times I had tears come to my eyes. We'll read it after, but I'd just like to share a story with you. A couple of weeks ago, Lou and I met with about eight other couples who today not necessarily are couples because some of the spouses have gone to be with the Lord. But we get together once a year, and we have a brunch together, which turns into at times, a supper, and we just spend a lot of good time together. And as uh, I think about those people uh, that come out to this um, brunch, uh, these are people that we've known for the last more than 45 years. These are people that we have saw, except the Lord, get baptized, Several of them, we've been there when they've been married. We've been there when they've had their first children. We've been there when the children have got married. And now we're seeing the grandchildren. And as I, I, I looked around and as Lou and I were talking with them, it was amazing. It was amazing. The feeling... I can speak for myself, but I'm sure Lulu would say the same thing. It was just amazing the joy that we had in our hearts because of the lives that God gave us with these people. And you know, it, as we reflect on their lives, some of them, none of them in reality, 
has had it very, very easy. There are people that have gotten sick, and like I alluded to before, at least six of the spouses have went to be with the Lord. But as, you know, as we were talking one with another, and we were just commemorating what we had went through, it's just stuff you can't forget. We were privileged. We were privileged to have been saved and to have been baptized here in Rosemount, but also to be involved with what God was doing among the French people in the 70s and the 80s. We were, we were privileged. And so these people, it wasn't only because we knew them through the different events in their lives, but we knew them because together, together, we had worked to what God had given us to do. I don't know if anybody else is here that has experienced starting a new church and working with people. But for us, and I think there would be many that would say this, that do this work, it's amazing, it's amazing. The bonds that are formed through working together for the Lord. And the way that we have taken care of one another all through the years. And usually what we do too is we have a time of prayer and without exaggeration, I'm speaking from the heart, the time of prayer is amazing because of the love we have for one another and the joy we experience in seeing one another and what God has done and because of his grace to keep us together all these years and permitted us to continue serving him. Friendship. Friendship in the Lord and in his work is something that cannot be compared to. Nothing. Let's read Chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul's epistle to the Philippians, and verses 1 to 11. I'd like us to notice as I'm reading that I have marked several words in red. It's not because Jesus has spoken those words, but I believe that the three main points that are brought forward in this passage are the main points that we see and we will see as we go through Philippians. I don't know if you know, but I would like to share with you anyway that, because I know there's some people that don't realize this, our Bibles, most of them, are just biographies and letters, especially in the New Testament. That's all they are. And so when we talk about the church or the, the epistle to the Philippians, all it is is a letter that is written to a group of people that live in a city or town called Philippi. That's all it is. And as we look at Paul's letters, we see that Paul, in his letter writing, he uses the same rules that we, that we would see with anybody writing letters in the first century. 
he writes, mentioning those to whom he writes. He speaks of himself and who he is. And he offers a blessing and a prayer to those who he, to whom he writes the letter. This is normal stuff. We don't have anything here that's esoteric. We don't have anything here that goes beyond, in reality, the way people sent and received letters in the first century. But, but, the Apostle Paul, when he writes his letters, usually we can determine or find within the first, I don't know, 10, 11, four or five verses, depending on uh, which epistle we're looking at, we can see in his salutations, we can see in his, uh, his thankfulness, we can see in his prayer exactly where he's going with this epistle. And so here, like I said, the words in red bring out the themes that we will find as we study through Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. I'd like to tell you as we read that in the original, in the Greek, it does say Christ Jesus. But the way that that is understood, first by the Jewish nation, and also by the Gentiles who have come to know who Paul is and what he is preaching, we should translate this to Tim, Paul and Timothy, servants of King Jesus. And that's absolutely essential as we read Philippians, because in Philippians, what Paul is doing, he is teaching the Philippians that Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. And so a lot of the things that we read in Philippians have to do with how we act, how we talk, how we live under Caesar, but what Paul is doing, he is, saying, he is saying everything that Caesar brings to himself, everything that people say about Caesar, because in Philippi there were temples to different gods, but there was a temple to the Roman family. There was a temple to, uh, uh, for Philippi, I believe that it was, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Claude, Claudius, and also to the Augustus's wife, who was Livia. So there were temples to which the Philippians went, and they offered sacrifices and worship to Caesar as if he was a god. And so what we have here in Philippians is Paul teaching the Philippians, well, they're doing it this way in Philippi, and because Philippi was a colony, a colony is just a representation, a smaller entity of Rome itself. So everything that Rome is, everything that Romans did in Rome, uh, the, the law system, uh, the, the, the economics, uh, everything was based upon how they did it in Rome. And so Paul is saying here, okay, we have a colony, and most of the people in Philippi would want to live according to the the. the uh, the rules and the laws and uh, uh, the uh, atmosphere that was, been, that was in Rome, but now is in Philippi. 
And Paul is teaching them in, Philipp in Philippians that we, we should not look toward the Romans, toward Caesar, toward the way that the Romans live as the way that God is calling the Christians to live. We should live as the citizens of heaven, as the citizenship, as the city of God here on earth, as the colony of God here on earth, showing forth praises to Jesus as the king. To all the saints in Christ Jesus or King Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, very important here, because there was only one Lord in first century Roman Empire. Who was that? It was Caesar. When the Christians were baptized, their confession as they were being baptized was, Jesus is Lord. And in saying that, they were saying, if Jesus is Lord, well, Caesar is not. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all or for each of you, making my prayer with joy. If Jesus, King Jesus, is one of the themes going through Philippians, the other theme that's going through Philippians is the theme of joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I should have put partnership in red because, again, that is another theme that is going through Philippians. Partnership. Or most of us maybe would know the Greek word koinonia. It's the idea of communion. It is the idea of relationship, one with another. And that's the third theme that we have going through Philippians. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers, that's our word again, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of King Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, of the King Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What we have here is we have in the way that Paul gives his greetings, in the way that he thanks, and in the way that he prays, the themes that he's going to develop throughout the book. And that we'll hear about, Lord willing, in the weeks, in the seven weeks to come. The title I've given for this message is A Cruciform Friendship Filled with Joy. Now, don't, don't be afraid. I'm going to explain what cruciform means. 
But these are the three, again, the three ideas that are taken and given right throughout Philippians. We are called to a cruciform friendship filled with joy. Joy is uh, a theme in Paul's work ever since he started the church in Philippi. We read in chapter 16 of these, uh, the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and the Acts is not an epistle. What it is, it's a sort of a history of the newborn church. And so what we find in Acts is the history of how after Jesus was raised from the dead, after Jesus went to sit at the right hand of his father, well, the church spread out. And it spread out in Palestine, or it spread out in, in, in Judea and Galilee, it spread to Samaria, and then it spread to the extremities of the world. And we see God working through the apostle Peter, and then we see him working through the apostle Paul. And during Paul's missionary journeys, that's what they're called by most of the Christians, during his missionary journey, one day he came to Philippi. In Philippi, which means at one moment, he was thrown into prison with Silas. And in prison, and let me tell you, the prison that they were thrown into was probably downstairs in some sort of a hole, and they were in stocks, and they, uh, they were in bonds, and, uh, and it wasn't the best place in the world to be. And besides that, they were thrown into the prison after they had been whipped and after they, in a, a certain sense, had been tortured. And in the prison, after all of this, they start to sing. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to him. And Paul tells us in Philippians that what he has called the Philippians to do is to have joy not only in good moments, but also in difficult moments. Joy is a leading theme in a letter. There are 16 occurrences of the word joy throughout Philippians. And as I looked at Paul's entrance into Philippi and what happened, I, to tell you the truth, I, it's, it's one of my favorite passages in Acts. And uh, I, I think it was one of Luke's favorite passages. Luke is a doctor that in, uh, before he went to Philippi, or when he got to Philippi, Luke was with Paul. And Luke, in his story of how Paul started the, uh, the, the, the mission to Philippi, uh, th there's an idea of joy. Myself having, in my very, very small way, done similar things to what Paul and Silas and Timothy have done on the pages of the Acts of the Apostles, I, I, I look at that and we see that Paul went into Philippi. And why did he go into Philippi? Because he had had a vision. He was trying to go elsewhere in Asia, and he tried there, and he tried north, he tried south. And the Bible says just that the Holy Spirit stopped him. And then one night, he had a vision. 
And in this vision, there was a man, a Macedonian, who was calling him and telling him, come on over here. And Saul and Paul believed that this was a vision from God. So he and Silas and Timothy got up and they made their way across the sea to the port which was called Neapolis. And 10 miles from Neapolis was the city of Philippi. You know, there's a joy in the Christian life, especially in a service for the Lord. You look at what Paul says in Acts with regards to they tried to go here, they tried to go there, but the Holy Spirit stopped them, and then they had the vision. You know, very often we say to ourselves, well, well, we say to ourselves or we think, Lord, I would love to do your will. I would love to do your will. What I read in the Bible is the Holy Spirit is supposed to be leading me. But then it's almost as if we say, well, if the Holy Spirit is going to lead me, I must have some sort of a miraculous vision or I must have some sort of a miraculous way that God says to me, well, this is the Holy Spirit leading. What is interesting in Acts chapter 16, it doesn't say how the Lord, Holy Spirit led. It just said he led. The Holy Spirit can work in our lives in ways that we cannot understand. But I'll tell you something. We give ourselves to God and to his work, and I promise you, not me, but I promise you on the witness of the Bible that the Holy Spirit is leading. He is leading, and he will lead until that day. He, so Paul had joy because the Spirit was, was leading him, but he also had joy for the expansion of the gospel. In Philippi, Acts 16, it's the largest story that we have of Paul and his evangelism with the cities in the Roman Empire. I forget exactly how many verses are taken up, but there's, I'd say about 14 or 15 verses are taken up with the start of the church in Philippi. And that is more verses for what Paul did in Philippi than for everyone else, according to the Acts of the Apostles. And we say to ourselves, well, why did Philippi receive so much importance? It wasn't because Philippi was the greatest city. In reality, Thessalonians was bigger than Philippi. Acts says that Philippi was the biggest city of that part of Macedonia. That's true. But we're talking about a city that maybe had from 10 to 15,000 people. So a very small city compared even to other cities in Macedonia and to Greek. But what makes the joy come out is it is the first time in the history of Christianity that the gospel is preached in Europe. The first time. What happens from Acts 16 going right until Acts 28 Most of them is done with regards to what is happening in Europe. But the first time God preached through Paul to the people of Europe was when he went into Philippi. (laughs) Again, personal, personal witness. There is not, permit me just to give a testimony. There were times when in the 70s and 80s, we would be praying the Lord, where would he want us to go? We wanted to see the church get bigger. 
But more than wanting to see the church get bigger, we wanted to see new churches start everywhere. And all of a sudden, someone would get saved and would get baptized, and they would invite their friends, and all of a sudden, you would see the start of a new church. And let me tell you, there is no joy like the joy of seeing someone come to the Lord, be baptized, invite his friends, and all of a sudden they're gathered about the Lord's table, and we have a new witness to the glory of God. Believe me, believe me, Paul had joy in that. He had joy for the expansion of the gospel, the expansion of God's work all over the world. He also had joy for the work of the Holy Spirit in Lydia. When he preached to the Philippians, there was no synagogue. That's one of the first things that we notice when we get into Acts 16. Up until that time, Paul would go into a city, and he would go to the synagogue. He'd speak to the Jews first, and then after he would speak to the Gentiles. But he would work out from the synagogue. But here in Philippi, we don't have any mention of a synagogue. All we have is a mention of a place of prayer. And usually when there was no synagogue, the people that were God-fearers or or that were inclined to believe in what God says at that time in the Old Testament, they would meet where there was a running brook of water. There was running water. And they would meet there, and then they would pray. And so Paul, seeing there was no synagogue, he goes down to the river, and he starts to speak to the people that are there. So for the first time again, Completely new method, completely new way of working. No synagogue. What do we do? We go to a river. We pray. Who do we meet? Some person high up in Philippi? No. We meet a woman, Lydia. And so what we have here is the first person that hears the gospel and believes in Europe is a woman. Again here, there's joy. Because there are times when we're preaching the gospel, when we're talking to our friends, and all of a sudden there comes someone in in the group to whom we're speaking, to whom we're witnessing, and we say to ourselves, oh, God can never do anything in that person's life. God will not save that person. What will God do with that person? This last week, uh, my grandson Samuel and my other grandchildren, they were at Parkside. Now, Parkside is a very important place for Rosma Bible Church, very important in its history. But Parkside also is a very, very important place in the history of God's work here in Quebec. Every January, we would go to Parkside and we'd put all our money together so that no one had to pay So they would come out the parkside, and they would come, and we'd have them for three days. And we would have fun together, but we would give them the gospel. And then all of a sudden, the person would believe, and I I would have a whole afternoon of stories to tell you of the people that were saved either at Parkside or from Parkside and what they're doing today. It is amazing. It's beautiful. And again, there's a heck of a lot of joy. And there was joy in the midst of persecution. 
And Paul says in Philippians that they too, the Philippians, would suffer. Bad times do not mean absence of joy. One of the miracles that God is able to do in our hearts is when we are going through the most difficult of situations, he is able to fill our hearts in ways that I believe are miraculous and fill us, just fill us with joy no matter what we're going through. I remember there were times again, one story I can tell you. I'm going to be in real trouble because on Saturday mornings we meet to talk about what we preached on the week before and we're supposed to take a certain amount of time. Please pray for me this week because I know I'm going to go over time. But we, we, we would preach the gospel and as we preach the gospel, People would believe, but people would go through hard things. But God, in his mercy, would bring them out of everything that was hard and give them joy. Our God is a God of joy. He is a God of joy. And I would suggest, from the example that Paul gives us, being involved with the advancement of the gospel And whatever way God calls us will give you the most joy you've ever experienced. The second one. A cruciform friendship filled with joy. Friendship in Philippi is very important. In fact, uh, several, I would say quite a few actually, of the commentators say that what Paul is modeling his epistle or his letter after is what is known as a friendship letter. And so Philippians, in the way that it is uh, uh, developed, is developed with rules that we find in other letters that are sent by people that are not Christians to other people. And we know that these letters are considered friendship letters. And so in Philippians, what we have is we have a letter that follows these rules. We have a letter that is a letter spoken to friends. And like I said in the beginning, koinonia, or partnership, is another leading Theme in Philippians is found in 1 5, 7, 2 1, 3 10, 4, 14, and 15. It is a very important theme. Koinonia, even in the first century, implies mutual fidelity, mutual loyalty. That is what is understood by koinonia, that is what is understood by friendship. If a patron, if Caesar, would call you his friend. That didn't just mean, okay, I'm going to shake his hand. What that meant is the person committed themselves to you and to your life. And so it wasn't just a question of the person committing, but if Caesar committed himself to me in a certain way, I had to commit myself to Caesar. There was a mutual loyalty and faithfulness one to another. Koinonia or partnership implies mutual intimacy. It's not just, hi, shake a hand, and I won't see you for I don't know how long. It was a question of really entering into that person's life and contributing to that person. 
it implies recipro reciprocity in the sense that in friendship, if one gave something, the other gave back. Not tit for tat. It wasn't like that. It's just that in a relationship, because they were committed one to another, well, in that relationship, they, one would give and the other would receive, and then the other one would give and the other one would receive. It didn't necessarily mean that if Caesar gave me something and that I could give him something back that was worth it according to what he gave me. But it is the same thing in reality with Jesus. What Jesus gives me, I'm never able to give him back what he has given me. But that does not exclude me from giving back to Jesus. Jesus wants us to give back all of ourselves and everything we have because of what he has given us. Koinonia implies love, and then I gave some verses here from John chapter 15, and uh, as I meditated upon this with this understanding of friendship, uh, when Jesus says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Jesus, in saying this, is taking the social understanding of what it means to be a friend and saying, well, this is the way that I act toward you. And what does it mean? Koinonia implies love. Love, not in the sense of, I feel good about you, or I feel good toward you. No. Love, according to what Jesus says here, is being ready to lay down our lives for the other. It's, I'm ready to obey, not for myself, but I'm ready to obey for the other. I am ready to listen to what God says to me for you. Brothers and sisters, friends, friends. You know what? One of the greatest things that we need in our Christian lives is friendship. But not just saying hi. I mean friends where we commit to one another to live for one another in loyalty until either God bring, takes us or God returns. I would see, I just think as I look around that it is something lost today. I enjoy coming on a Sunday morning for different reasons, personal reasons you want to know why, come see me after. But I really, really enjoy my Wednesday night with Lou and the group that meets with Robert and with Greg. I really enjoy the Tuesday night when we meet with Stephen and with Louie, with Keith and their wives, of course. We just enjoy it. You know why? Because that's what God's calling us to do. He's calling us to make friends. Do you have friends? Are you ready to be a friend? You say, oh, well, no one likes me. No one wants to be my friend. Tough. Go become their friend. It's not a question of them reaching out to us. It's us reaching out to them. I want to be their friend. So I'm going to lay down my life to be their friends. And that's what Philippians is saying. 
Now this last point, which is a very, very important point. The key verses in Philippians are in chapter 2 and verse 5 to 9. The theologians call them the verses of the kenosis theory, how, how Jesus emptied himself for us. And because he emptied himself, God raised him up. He became a slave for us. He did service for us. He died for us. And this model that is given in chapter 2 in the verse 5 to 9 is a model. It's like the hinge on which all the verses before these verses speak to that. Chapter 2 and verse 5 to 9. And chapter 2 and verse 5 to 9 speak also to what comes after. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the character of the Christian life. And the character of the Christian life, like Louis told us a couple of weeks ago, is not one of power. It is not one of being the boss. What it is, is it's being ready to take on the cruciformity of Christ and to live my life not in power, but to live my life in weakness, because that is where God works. Another little, breaking the bread this morning, John got up, David got up, and John, we know what he has been through. And David, he's getting old like me. Uh, but, you know, I, look, I, I was there, I might have tears now, but I look on that and I say, what is there? What is there that the world considers to be something? Nothing. But what I see, in a way, is weakness that God can exploit to his glory. And God, as Christians, he calls us to this cruciformity. Not a victory as the world understands, but to be like the Lord Jesus. It's a call to worship Jesus as Lord. It's a call not to worship Caesar and all he represents. It's a call to hope in the return of our Lord. It is a call to the hope of resurrection. Brothers and sisters, friends, God calls us to joy, calls us to friendship, and he calls us to cruciformity. Can you stand, please? Please stand. Close your eyes. Bow your heads. Please. I hope God has spoke to your hearts this morning. I hope that Jesus and all he is and all he can do, that he's just opened your heart to his glory. Brothers and sisters, God, I don't know what you're going through, but I know one thing. To know Jesus, not to know about him, but to know him and all he is can fill us with joy. I pray this morning joy on everyone that's going through a hard time. Friendship. 
You want friends? Become a friend. Maybe you're lonely. There are many people that are lonely in our world. Look around you. Look around you. What can you do to become a friend? And realize first what a friend we have in Jesus. He doesn't call us slaves. He calls us friends. And then, Lord, take my life. I do not search for what this world wants. I don't search for the power of Caesar. What I search for is your crucifer. That your power might be shown through my weakness. Speak to God in your hearts. Father in heaven, Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for your love toward us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the brothers and sisters. Oh, Lord, we just thank you. Our hearts are full this morning because we know you. You are God. You are great. You are wonderful. You are majestic. You are the best, Father. We are nothing but you are the best. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for having come. We thank you for having been weak so that we might be strong. We thank you for the promise that he who has started in us this good work will render it for that day when you appear. And, oh, Father, we know that the work in us does not depend on us. It depends on you, and we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you again that you are God. In the name of Jesus, amen.